0: I don't want to just be a welcoming. Here's what I mean by that. I don't want us to get to a place where, like, we have a wonderful church, it's warm, we have facilities, so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, our mindset becomes, we're here, so come to us. Because the trajectory of the Bible is not, we're here, wonderful facility, wonderful stuff happening so come to us the trajectory of the bible is jesus saying i'm gonna leave the 99 and what go after the one the trajectory of the bible church is one in which we're not just welcoming i don't want to minimize that we're not just hospitable but it's one in which monday through sunday we're going who needs jesus and needs to hear about him? does that make sense See, that's why sometimes the danger of church zoning a building is we go from the trajectory of we go out with the gospel and for mission and not just go, we're here, comfortable, so come to us. My prayer is that we will not get so comfortable in just welcoming that we forget about the trajectory of Scripture. Amen? Here's another thing. There's something that I'm intensely interested in that the Bible just doesn't seem to be interested in at all, particularly the Bible scripture writers. There's a topic that I'm intensely interested in that the scripture writers just don't seem to be interested in at all. Can you take a guess what that is? I put it up there. It's me. This is a topic... That I am intensely interested. Anybody else? Am I the only one? This is a topic. No, listen, listen, listen. I, I, I need to kind of hit you upside the head right away because it's kind of cold outside. So I grab your attention. I am intensely interested just about every day in this topic. But the problem is when I read the Bible, the Bible just doesn't seem to be interested in that topic. Rather, here is what the Bible is interested in. It's God. The scripture writers are intensely interested in this topic. Here's what I mean by that. God and God's mission to the world and God's calling a people for that mission. Let me say this again. Sometimes when we go to the Bible and it seems boring, irrelevant, doesn't really speak to me, so on and so forth. Could be that we approach it and go, I am intensely interested in me, and I'm going to see if the Bible is as much as interested in me. And what you see in the Bible is that it's intensely interested in God, God's mission, and God's calling himself a people for that mission. And the desire of Scripture writers and God is that you and I would not be so focused and interested in me, but that we would become interested in God and God's mission and God calling for himself a people for that mission. Amen? Anybody with me? Okay. This is the reason why in our church, I preach sermons like today. And I, every time I preach sermons like today, I'm always like throughout the week, I'm going, Lord, some people are going to just want to leave afterwards. Because it's not about them. It's about you and your mission and calling of people for that mission. And I'm going against the grain of our culture where Monday through Friday, you are bombarded with messages that says, the world is about you. All of a sudden, like today we come and we recognize it's not about me. It's about God and God's mission. But you know, have to let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit's going to do and just be faithful amen so warning it's not about you this morning or about me this morning, although we're intensely interested in that sorry okay so first Peter chapter two I've already offended a bunch of people it's okay I'm just getting started all right first Peter chapter two verse four. This should sound familiar to you. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Verse five, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We spent the entire fall on this. We said that according to scripture, one of the metaphors is given of the church, the body of Christ, the people of God is bricks. And what the Bible says is that you and I are individual stones, But that we are being built together to become a spiritual house, temple of the Holy Spirit for God. And if these individual bricks represent you and me individually, the question that is asked as God builds this temple called the church is, are we... So interconnected to each other that the only way to describe your relationship, your life, your Christian life is one in which you are so interdependent, interconnected, doing life on life with people that the only way to explain it is if you were to stop showing up, the whole thing would collapse. This is the church. This is what Jesus died and rose again for. Not so that you and I would, you know, I don't know, um, be way over there going, me and God, God and me, my own personal, private spirituality. Once in a while, I kind of show up to church and once in a while, I kind of do. The picture of Christianity is one in which are you so interconnected, interdependent to a group of people in a local expression called the church that if you were to stop showing up, the whole thing would collapse. That's the church. This is what Jesus died and rose again for, not just our individual salvation. Are you? So connected to others in this body that if you start showing up, the whole thing would collapse. Verse 6, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I love that. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The Apostle Peter lists four descriptions of what you and I are to be. So today, it's one of those foundational Sundays, because this is literally about the mission and vision of our church. It's a core identity. These four things that you and I are called to be and do. First, a holy nation. A holy nation. The word nation is the word ethnos, from which you get the English word ethnic. And you got to understand, Peter is writing to multi-ethnic churches in multi-ethnic cities. The Pax Romana is a state in that time in which the Roman Empire had essentially taken over most of Mediterranean, most of Europe. And for the first time ever in history, people were able to move about from country to country under the rule of the Roman Empire. People that were at war with each other were now moving about and living in same cities for the very first time. So the very first time, you begin to see rise of multi-ethnic cities in multi-ethnic groups of people uh, doing life together. One of these cities, one of these cities is found in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. And it's the city of Antioch. And if you've been coming to a New Community for any amount of time, You know exactly where I'm going with this. Acts chapter 11, verse 90. Here's what we find. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Verse 20. But some of them, however, men from Cyrene and uh, Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. This is the first time that the gospel is brought to a big major city. The city of Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's the capital of Syria. And because of its location geographically, it was, it was 20 times larger than Jerusalem, far more dense, far more pluralistic, far more multi-ethnic. They found all kinds of people groups living in the city of Antioch. The city of Antioch is built by this guy. Seleucus is his name. He is one of the generals of Alexander. And he names the city after his father, Antiochus. And Antiochus, in Antioch, Seleucus does something interesting in that city that hadn't really been done before. He not only built walls outside the city of Antioch, as they did to essentially guard them from enemies, he built city walls within the city. Historians found over 18 different ethnic quarters where people from different ethnicities and races lived among one another. Why? We're talking about a time in which a simple racial incident in the marketplace could lead to deadly violence. So, Seleucus builds these walls within Antioch to keep each of the race and ethnicity from each other. Now, um, are you aware that you and I live in a city of ethnic quarters? Um, Let me show you a picture of our city. The red dots represent a certain people group. Guess who they are? White people. There's a lot of them. I'm just kidding. The blue represent who? Black folk. The yellowish hue represent who? Hispanic. And you can't really tell, but there's like slivers of green. It's like really concentrated in a place called Chinatown. And that's where all the Asian people are. (laughs) This is our city. This is the city that you walk out into when you walk out these doors. And unless you're living under a rock and you refuse to pay attention to what's going on, we live in a city that's been divided, not by physical walls, but by things like housing ordinances. Mm -hmm. We live in a city that's marked, not by physical walls, but things like an informal racist realtor system. We live in a city that's marked by educational policies. And yes, zoning laws, and I could go on and on and on, but do you recognize new community that we live in a city, maybe not unlike the city of Antioch, where people are living in their ethnic quarters? Now here's what happens in the city of Antioch. The gospel comes for the very first time, and something amazing happens. We pick it up in verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 22. News of this reached the years of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Verse 23. When he arrived and saw everybody, say this with me: evidence of the grace of God. One more time: the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. What did he see? He saw something as a Jew in Jerusalem he never seen. He saw these different groups of people living in these ethnic quarters come out of their walls and begin to worship together and to break bread together. And you go, well, how do you know that? In Acts 13, there's two chapters later, you find a list of leaders in the city of Antioch, the church in Antioch, and you find someone from Africa. You find someone from Egypt. You find the Greek. You find a Roman. And you find a Jew. You find in the leadership of Antioch, cross-section of Roman society. For the very first time. The Roman world stood in awe as they saw people who hated each other, who never interacted with each other, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, male, female. They saw each other as family. And this is a time in which family, blood relations meant everything. And they're saying now we are a new family. Eating together, working together, raising kids together, marrying each other, bearing each other the first Christians were derisively called the third race because their culture looked at them and said, um, they don't fit into that category. They don't fit into that category. What are you? And you need to listen to this. This kingdom community that broke down every social barrier in the Roman Empire wasn't just the result of the gospel. It became the reason why people believed. This wasn't just the result of conversion. They were converted, so they did this. It became the cause of conversion. People looked at that church and said, that is humanly impossible. There is no human program, ingenuity, social experiment that could cause that. That has to be something beyond what human beings can do. And they changed their world for Jesus. I have to ask, is that happening here? Over the 13 years of our church history, I've had non-Christians who will come up to me and they'll say stuff like this. They'll be like, I'm not a Christian, but man, if there is a heaven, it would look something like this, Peter, new community. Because if there is a God, wouldn't he be the kind of God that would erase the dividing walls that human beings have put up? What does it mean for us to be a holy nation, a counterculture, a distinct ethnic? Here it is. You wonder what our mission statement is? Some of you are like, why do they say that mission statement every Sunday? What the heck does that mean? We are called to be a city within a city. Here's what it means. We're called to be a city within a city. Chicago is a big city. And in this big city of Chicago is a small, tiny, little city called New Community. And in this city of new community we live with a completely different set of values in regards to everything that the world stands for because we serve a different king. And what does it mean for us? I'll tell you what this means for us, okay? Here's my so I'm going to be like here's where I'm going to offend you <laughs> and then I'm going to It starts with us looking like the city out there. But in order for us to look like the city out there from the very get-go in the life of our church, we said that we were going to have a city-wide reach and not just a neighborhood reach. From the very get-go, our vision was not to be just a neighborhood church because we don't want our church to look like 20-something, skinny jeans-wearing, fair trade coffee-drinking hipsters. Can I say that? Is that okay? Okay, (laughs) I already did. Okay, well, I wear skinny jeans sometimes too, so, you know, I'm right there with you. Church, 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 church. For those of you that have come and wondered, is new community a neighborhood church? I planted this church, and from the very get-go, to anybody that will listen, we said, we need to be a city-wide church. Why? We live in a segregated city, and part of our call is to bring these people who live in segregated neighborhoods to be a part of one church family so we could testify to the reconciling power of the gospel. Is that okay? So don't ever get this twisted. I love the fact that we're in this neighborhood and we serve this neighborhood to the best of our ability. But we need to be a witness to the city that looks like that, that there is a community of people who are bringing people together under one roof that the rest of city of Chicago does not know about. So you need to know. That the mission and vision of our church is not just to be a neighborhood church, but to reach the entire city so we could display the reconciling power of the gospel. Amen? Get this. Get this. Secondly, what does it mean for you? (sighs) This means that if you don't want to worship with people who are different from you, this church might not be for you. This means that if you don't want to do life with people who are different from you, this church might not be for you. Now, can I just make... This church, I want it to be for you. I want to... Don't get me wrong, I want to. But if you're someone who says, I don't want to worship with people, like for real, for real, people were different from me, this church might not. If you don't want to do life with people, if you don't want your biases, your prejudices, and your assumptions about various people groups challenged and stretched, this church might not be for you. If you're looking for a place where everything, everything, everything makes you super comfortable, you're like, I like everything about this church. And nothing bothers you, this church might not be for you. Because if you're a part of a multi-ethnic diverse church body, you're going to get a Korean dude who's going to shout in your face every Sunday. I know you like it, Amber. I know the black folk in that church like it. I don't know about the (laughs) red. If you're sitting there going, oh, why is the worship like this? It may be because it doesn't sound like where you came from. Are you okay with that? You guys, oh. Please understand that when you walk through these doors, the fundamental, fundamental vision of our church says, we are going to stretch, challenge, make you uncomfortable. And if you're not okay with that, this church might not be for you. The end goal, though, is that as we pursue genuine reconciliation, not just that we look like the city out there under the rule of Christ, but as walls of fear, as walls of pride, as walls of self-protection come down, the city out there can see the power of the gospel that reconciles not just sinful humanity to God, but sinful humanity to each other. Church, the people in this city need to see evidence of the grace of God. we live in need to see the evidence of the grace of God. This gospel that has power not just to bring heart changes but social changes. And sometimes that means that we confess our sin of racism and prejudice and we embrace repentance at least to true change. But we we (sighs) we We are in a city that desperately needs to see evidence of the grace of God. I have struggled for 13 years with this. Do you know why? Because you know what this has meant? This has meant that our church has grown very slowly. This has meant that people have left. This has meant that... It makes doing this thing, community, so much challenging, so much more complex. My question for you. One, are you coming to church with people who look and act just like you? Second question, are you sitting right now with people who look and act just like you? Uncomfortable. Three, do you only interact with people who look and act just like you? What's our fellowship time look like when we go? Sometimes just for the sake of it, I want to go up to, like, a group of 10 Asian college kids that are, like, huddled together and go, boo! (laughs) I'm just kidding. Like, come on, guys! Go! About! Come on! Come on! I just want to do that. I just want to do that. Fourth question. Do words diverse, different, difficult describe your friendships? Fifth, are you regularly praying with anyone who doesn't look and act just like you? Next, do you seek out mentors of different race, ethnicity, and gender? Next question, do you regularly practice the spiritual discipline of forgiveness? Because if you are in for real, for real relationships, you're going to offend, and you're going to need to forgive. Do you acknowledge that we live in a culture influenced by race and class? Do you speak up when others stereotype people of other race and class? And then I do have to ask this last question every single time we do this. Are you feeling prideful and arrogant on how well you did on this test? (laughs) Oh, church. Let me put it this way. If you want to fulfill the mission of this church, you need to ask God to give you love for people who are different from you. If you want to fulfill the mission of this church, you need to pray and ask God to give you love for people who are different from you. Holy nation. Secondly, royal priesthood. Royal priesthood. You guys realize royal priesthood is an oxymoron? Y'all with me? Royal priesthood is an oxymoron. Particularly the nation of Israel. but There were two very distinct roles. There's two very distinct roles, okay? Here's what a priest did. A priest stood with his back to you, okay, on behalf of God. A priest is someone who stood his back to you on behalf of God. A priest in the nation of Israel was someone who took the alms so that he could look out for the poor. A priest was a health officer, if you will. Do you remember? Every time Jesus heals somebody, he says what? Now that you're healed, go show yourself to the priests. The priests were the health officers. So the priests in the nation of Israel work with the poor where the health officers work with the sick. So the priests, if you will, were people of sympathy and service. They stood on your behalf, representing before God. Sympathy and service. What does a king do? A king doesn't turn with his back towards you. A turn, A king faces you with the sword in his hands. He says, do it or else. In the nation of Israel, priests and kings, and kings and priests were $2. And then Jesus comes along, and he says, "Um, I'm a royal priest. I'm a priestly king. Jesus comes along, and he says, I have no place to lay my head. What kind of a king is this? Jesus comes along, and he says, "Uh, I choose, To not hobnob with the rich, famous, and so on and so forth. But to be with the least, the marginalized, the weakest of society. This king comes and he, listen to this, he wins our salvation by losing. He wins our salvation by losing. He comes to power by giving his power away. And he comes to wealth by giving all of his wealth away. This king comes along and the climax of his career is not when he gets elected, but when he gets what? Crucified. And the rest of the world looks at him and says, what kind of a king is that? And Jesus says, here's the kind of king that I am. In my kingdom, if you want to be first, you shall be what? He says, in my kingdom, it's those who mourn that they will find comfort. In my kingdom, he says. So this king comes and he says, I am a royal priest, a priestly king. And here's what I'm about. I am about turning the values of the world on its head. I am about completely reversing the value system of the world. And he says, listen to this. Anybody who wants to follow this king, you and I too shall embrace a completely upside down value system. When it comes to power, money, status, significance. Did you hear that? This king comes and says, you want to follow me? He says, just as I have raised an upside-down pattern for living, flip the script of the society on its head, you too shall do that. Well, so here's what it means, if I could just, one example. Richard Foster, a generation ago, said that the three perennial areas of ethics for Christians was power, money, and what would you guess the third one is? Say it. You can say it in church. Sex. (laughs) <laughs> oh you weren't sure it's power, money and sex and although i would love at this time to do all three let me just do one let me just do one here's what it means for followers of jesus you and me to embrace a priestly king and to embrace an upside down value system when it comes to power i just gotta i'm just gonna kind of vent two times during this this is virtual first of all it's so discouraging to hear christians talk during election season about how things will be different when we get into. the when are we ever going to learn that looking to political powers to solve the issues of our culture is short-sighted? Do you know why? Because it doesn't matter who's in office. It doesn't matter. Their fundamental perspective, how they view power, is not of Jesus. It's of the world. Power. Power. The rest of the world says, here's my approach to power. I accrue it, I get as much as I can, and when I'm in power, I lord it over people. And Jesus says, anyone who wants to follow the king, here's what you do about power. You lay it down in service to the least of these. Just like him. John chapter 13. This is one of the most amazing passages in all Scripture. Jesus, Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Holy cow. Jesus, the night before he was crucified, has all the power and authority of his heavenly father under his... What does he do? So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. A kingdom person realizes that power is not given to benefit those who hold it. It's given for the flourishing of others, to serve others. New Community Church, are you listening to me? Power is a gift. Power is a gift given by a giver who showed us ultimately what we do with that power. And it is to use it for the flourishing and service of others and not for ourselves. And because it's a gift, you are accountable to how you use it before God and before others. Now, if you're sitting there going, why are you talking about this? Why are you talking about this? Here's why. Here's why. Power is not the opposite of servanthood, but servanthood ensuring the flourishing of others is the very purpose of power. How many of you know you 're sitting in this room right now and you 've got all kinds of power at your hands? I am so nervous about preaching mothers. Do you know why? This is new community. This is new community. What do I mean? We have a disproportionate number of people in our church who have power because of your race. You have power because of your educational background. You have power because of how much money you make. You have power because of the position in society. You have so much power in your hands. And what the city out there needs is not that you use that power to benefit you and to promote you or feel bad and feel guilty that you have that power, but your call as a follower of Jesus, my call as a follower of Jesus, is to leverage what God has entrusted to us for the sake of others. Oh, church, oh, church, you're 25. You're sitting there going, I've got no power. Do you realize how much power you have? Do you realize how much power you have? And what do you think being a Christian is in the workplace? You think being a Christian is studying a Bible study, praying for people, or bringing donuts to work so that people can... What is a Christian that is wherever you are with the power that you have? You say, this is a gift that's been entrusted to me. This is a gift that's been given to me. And God's call in my life is to use this for the most vulnerable, for the weakest in our culture and society, and not for myself. So I don't feel guilty about the fact that God has given it to me. I don't feel bad about the fact that it's here. And I don't lord it over people with it. I use it. I use it. I use it for the sake of others. And in our culture, that means the poor, that means the elderly, that means the sick, that means the refugees, the dispossessed and the displaced. And in our culture right now, in our racial climate, here's the question. What are you doing to leverage the power you have to speak up and speak against the fear-mongering, the race-basing, and the racial injustice we see in our culture? What are you doing? What are you doing about all the power that's been entrusted to you and to me? The church is called to be a community of royal priests. That means we say, I've been given this as a gift. How am I using it and leveraging it for the sake of justice? Give me like two minutes. Two minutes just to get really, really personal with you and me. I have felt for years, and I'm convinced even more so, that working for justice in our culture requires consciences that are sensitive to the problem. But I'm realizing after 13 years of preaching this, your conscience is not going to be made more sensitive because you learn more information. Your conscience become sensitive when your affections are engaged. And the only way your affections are engaged is if you get to know people. Because here's the truth that I found. When you care about the people, you care about the situations they're in. When you care about the people. Because how do you empathize with someone when you have no idea what their story is? How do you even begin to feel compassion towards someone when you've never, when you've never taken the time to get to know them? How do you mourn with someone when you've never been with them? Could this be why our church, and I need to say this, and some of you might hate me for it, I need to say this, could this be why the the most dangerous thing about a multi-ethnic church like this is that you guys actually think you're being people of justice just by sitting next to someone who doesn't look like you? Because here's the thing, you ready? How can I say that I love you? if I don't care about the policies that affect you? How can I say that I love you if I don't care about the policies that affect you? How? How could I say to my brothers and sisters in this room, policies and laws that affect... How could I possibly say... To Amber, I love you if I don't even know and not even aware of systems, laws, policies that are affecting her and her family. How? Are you getting to know your brothers and sisters? Are you staying informed? New community, covenant church. Are we just playing church? Or are we trying to fulfill this mission that God has called us to do? I feel all alone up here right now. (laughs) Oh, guys. I prayed over today the entire week. Because like I said, every time I preach this, every time. There are people in our church who attend and go, that's not what I thought new community was. I'd rather change the city, though, with 10 people who are committed to the mission of church than 1,000 people who will just casually attend. Where do you get the power to do this? Where do you get the power to do this? Say it. Where do you get the power to do this? And this is why you like the community. Because I don't go, so go out there and do it. To which many of us are like, I am just guilty, feeling guilty. There's two others that we want to quickly look at where we get the power to do this. First is, the third identity of who we are is that we are chosen ones. Everybody say this with me. Ready? You're chosen ones. Okay, well, last time I'm going to offend and I'm, gonna, I'm done, okay? Um, America is not a. Um, I can't. Okay, can I say it? Can I say it? Okay, okay. okay. this video, by the way, is on the internet. So that America is not God's chosen nation. Amen. Nope, I don't. I immigrate this country as a 10-year-old. I am grateful for the opportunities that this country has afforded me. And I could genuinely say I am grateful, thankful And love this country. However. Let's not get it twisted. America is not God's chosen. No nation. According to scripture. The nation that God speaks of. That's chosen. Is the people of God. Who've given allegiance. Not to the flag of the United States of America. But to Jesus as king. We live in a time. In which. God and country are synonymous as if commitment to one is commitment to the other. Where do you find that in the Bible? Where do you find that in the Bible? And by the way, I grew up as a Korean. I heard this talk all my life. Koreans are, the Korean people are the new Israel. The Korean people are the new Israel. It took me years to get rid of that weirdness in my own head okay so if you're sitting there going how dare you trust me for most of my life i'm like we are the chosen people do you know what that does though when you think that god chose you because of your race ethnicity it breeds racism nationalism and all kinds of evil that's destroyed our world when the bible says you're chosen you don't go god bless america you say god bless the world and everyone who's given allegiance to King Jesus. So if you don't like this, you argue with me from Scripture, please, not from where you came from. Can I say that? Oh, man, y'all didn't know this was coming today, did you? We are at a time in which we need to remember that the church in the body of Christ makes a stronger claim on you than your country of origin, makes a deeper claim according to Jesus than even your own family. And by making a claim to church that's stronger and deeper than our country of origin, our family, what the church does is it provides family for those without families. And it provides a people for those who've been marginalized by their countries. Do you hear me? That's why the church is such a beautiful thing. Is that it says for those without families, you have a family you could belong to. Those without countries, you have a country you could belong to. And it's inclusive of everybody. That's why the Bible says, it's not about your country of origin or your family. It's about a larger family. So what does it mean that we're chosen? What does it mean that we're chosen? Here it is. And it's great news. It's beautiful. It's the gospel. What does it mean that we're chosen? It means that you didn't pick God. God picked you. Is that good news to anybody? You didn't pick God. God picked you. God is the initiator of this whole deal called the Christian life. And that has a lot of implications. First and foremost, which is God actually likes you. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. He doesn't just love you like in the biblical sense, God loves you. God actually likes you. And do you know how and when you were chosen? It didn't involve spiritual lottery balls, okay? Here's what the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. When did he choose you? Before the world was even an idea. That means that God beat you to it by like eternity. (laughs) Is that good news to anybody? Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption through sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He predestined you and me for adoption. He preselected you and me for adoption. That means God wasn't waiting on you. God came to you and said, I pick you. I choose you. I love you. I like you. I want to do something with your life. God selected you before your mother and father even met. Chew on that. And this is so powerful because you and I, will walk out those doors and we're desperately getting people to choose us. I want him to choose me. I want her to choose me. I want work to choose me. And we get so, he diselected me. He unfriended me. Boo-hoo. We just, and we have the creator of the universe who holds the universe in his hands and saying, I chose you. I picked you. I like you. I want to do something with you. Is that good news? That hasn't hit you yet. That's why y'all sitting there going, there. Yeah. But if the truth of that hits you, do you know what it will do? You will sit there and go, even when I wasn't pursuing God, He was pursuing me. Amen. Even when. Pursuing, I was doing the opposite. I was running as fast as I can the other way. When by the power of the Holy Spirit, he opened my heart and said, child, I want to do something with you. I love you. I die for you. Is that good news? That's what the Bible says happened to you and me. We are chosen. Good God. We are chosen by the creator of the universe, not because of anything we've done, not because of our race, culture, ethnicity, but simply out of grace. Sure grace. And if you understand this, this completely reshapes your fundamental identity. Completely reshapes your fundamental identity. You, I can't tell you how often in the life of this church I'm almost done. I meet people who come from small towns where they lived in a Christian bubble, and they're going through a faith crisis. Do you know why? Because they'll come to me and go, Pastor Peter, I'm a student. At da, da da da. And they'll say, You know what? I'm meeting Muslims and Buddhists and atheists and agnostics who are kinder and gentler and just better people than Christians I know back home. How is that even possible? And I say, well, I think on that doctrine test you took, you know, you got the theology part, right? When the question was, are you saved by grace and grace alone? Yes. But you're really living your life as a self-righteous Pharisee. Because deep down inside, you don't think you're saved because of grace. You think you're saved because you're good. So when you meet people of different race, faith, ethnicity, people who don't believe what you believe, and you're shocked by, oh my gosh, how are they better people? Oh, I know. It's because I was chosen, not because I was good. If you don't get that, let me tell you why this is so important for what we're going to talk about today. If you don't get that, let me just ask you. If you say, I am chosen because I'm good, I'm kind, I'm generous, how will you treat people you meet who are not good, who are not kind, who are not generous? If you go, I am chosen because of my culture and my race, how will you treat people who are not of your culture, of your race? You're going to disdain them. You're going to exclude them. You might even exploit them. And yes, I need to say this. If your identity is based on your politics, I'm a conservative. I'm a liberal. You know what you're going to do? First of all, you're going to live in an echo chamber where you only hang out with people who believe what you believe. And then when you look at people who disagree with you, you go, you're so stupid. Disagree with you, you go, I'm going to include you. You're the problem in the world. But what the gospel does is it comes and it says your fundamental identity, you're chosen. Did you have anything to do with that? No. You're chosen. Do you have anything to do with that? No. So what that does is undercuts any sense of pride and superiority. And you know what that does? We come and go, you're Hindu. You're Muslim. You don't believe what I believe. But my call as a Christian, I serve you. I love you. And if need be, I lay down my life for you. Is that happening to you? Because there is no way in the world that you will use your power and serve. You will lay down your life as royal priests and serve if your fundamental identity is not, I am chosen. Lastly, the other side of chosen is, I am God's treasure possession. Thank you, Jesus. I am God's treasure possession. and NIV says God's special possession. Grace, I'm almost not. But literally, it's a people treasure. Church, let me ask you something. What do you give someone who has everything? What do you give someone? Annette, what do you give someone who has everything? He has the stars. He has the moon. He has the earth. He has the oceans. What do you give someone who has everything that makes them feel rich? do you hear what Annette said she's like myself I'm like you're already preaching for me what do you give God who has everything what do you give God when the Bible says there's one thing that makes God feel rich and treasured, you know what that is what is it what is it don't be embarrassed say it what is it it's you and it's me or he wouldn't have gone to the cross (laughs) I don't know what to do with that I don't know what to do with that except want to weep and shout for joy. I don't know what to do with the fact that when the Bible says you are not just chosen, but the flip side of that, you are God's treasure. I don't know what to do with the fact that I make God feel rich. I make God feel wealthy. I make God's heart skip a beat. Otherwise, he would not have done that for me. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that. But I'll tell you this. It's only if I realize that I'm already treasured, already loved, already prized, can I go out there and serve people for their sake and not for my sake. It's only when I recognize that I am already chosen, already prized, already loved, that I can go out there and serve people for their sake and not for my sake. Because if you don't understand this, you're going to go out there and you're going to say, I love you, but you're going to do it to make yourself feel loved. You're going to go out and say, I want to make you feel treasured, but you're really going to do it so that you could feel treasured. And that is not love, that's the opposite of love. You need the humility that comes from knowing I am chosen. But you also need the security of knowing I am treasured. Because if you don't understand this... I said this last week, you cannot give what you don't already have. You cannot give what you don't already have. You can go out there, and if you don't have this foundation, you could love people. And on the outside, it may look like love, but it's the opposite of love. Why? Because true, genuine love says, I am laying down my life and doing it for you, not for me. And if you do not have the security and the firm foundation and identity that's secure that says, I am I, I, what? I, I'm chosen? I'm, I'm treasured? I am. So I will lay down my life as a royal priest. And I will live my life in community with people who are called to be an alternate city with me. nation, a royal priesthood, chosen people, God's treasure. Pray with me. To do, but just to stand in awe and say, Thank you. Thank you for choosing me. Thank you for treasuring me. There's nothing, there's nothing that I did to deserve any of this, any of this, but by sheer grace and mercy. You came calling in my life and said, "I choose you. I love you." <laughs> and my prayer, God, as I've been praying all week, is it this? almost impossible dream that we've had from day one almost impossible dream to be a city within a city, an alternate city of royal priests of servants of God of ambassadors for the kingdom, of people living in reconciled relations, this impossible impossible dream and vision would become a reality by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the power of the living God that lives and dwells among us. And God, I'm gonna I'm gonna give my life and die giving my life for your call upon our church and for every single one of us. can I just give you a moment or two to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and then I'm going to ask the ushers and greeters and I'm going to give our tithes and offering and we're going to proclaim the salvation of our God but man as you're sitting there Can you please be rigorously honest about where you are, not just in your own personal life, but as a part of this church and our mission? If you need to confess and repent, confess and repent. If you are overfilled with gratitude and praise, give Him gratitude and praise. this with me I am chosen come on say it I am chosen I am treasure say it again I am chosen